0: This is All In. I'm Matt Pelster. Welcome to the Friday Pitch-In, where the show isn't about just one topic. Coming up, we'll hear about proposed changes that may affect family and consumer science classes in Indiana. And later, we'll hear from Ryan Niemiller, the comedian who made it to the third-place slot in the most recent uh, America's Got Talent season. But we'll kick things off, as we always do, with a roundup of the biggest state stories of the week with our digital producer, Lauren Chapman. Hi, Lauren.
1: Hey, how's it going?
0: Not too bad. So, I mean, it's sort of a slow news week, or is it?
1: Uh, Yes. I think you could very easily qualify this as a pretty slow news week. We had one story that, uh, you know, kind of came out of this week, but everything else is... You know, leading us up to the legislative session and everybody coming back from uh, from the holidays. So
0: still plenty to talk about.
1: That. Oh, so much to talk about.
0: Let's talk about this manufacturing jobs report that came out. It seems, I mean, is this, is this grim? Uh,
1: depends on who you ask. Yeah. So Indiana has lost nearly 8,000 manufacturing jobs through November of this year. And mm-hmm. some economists say that's a bad sign for the economy for Fairly obvious reasons. Uh, Indiana remains one of the most reliant states on manufacturing jobs. And Indiana hasn't lost more manufacturing jobs than it added over a calendar year mm-hmm. since 2009, which was, of course, the height of the recession. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it is absolutely on track to do that again this year. Um, but Governor Eric Holcomb says uh, that, you know, this isn't something to worry about. Uh, and he says it actually just highlights uh, Indiana's changing economy. Uh, those advanced manufacturing jobs And Indiana's uh, need to uh, to continue to attract more I.T. and uh, high tech jobs.
0: I, I mean, you could look at it one way in that this is sort of a boom time and this could just be seen as a correction.
1: Yeah. I mean, so, of course, we're, we're constantly hearing about manufacturers needing more skilled labor. And that's kind of what Holcomb's pointing to, that when you have more skilled labor, you don't necessarily need as many unskilled laborers. Uh, and that might be a, a contributing factor. Um, but of course, Governor Eric Holcomb's not an economist. He's governor who is running up to a re-election year next year. So, you know, taking what he's saying with a grain of salt, you know, economists obviously point to this and say this isn't great for Indiana's economy, especially because because we do rely on manufacturing so heavily,
0: but to a degree, it could be expected, depending on how you looked at how you look at it. Totally. Yeah. And what about um, this uh, proposal to? Um Decrease, decrease the age limit for to serve in the legislata- legislature? Goodness.
1: <laughs> yes. So uh, there is actually an age limit to serve at the Indiana State House. Uh, the state constitution sets the age limit to serve in the Indiana Senate at 25 years old and 21 years old for the House. Uh, and uh, there's a, constu- a constitutional amendment proposed by uh, Dwyer Democrat Christy Chung uh, to uh, change those limits uh, both to 18 years old. Uh, in November, Chung said that he had Gotten a Republican co sponsor for his amendment, which without one is likely to um, advance anywhere in the legislative session.
0: Okay, so. so the GOP leaders are saying no.
1: Yeah. Yeah, basically. Uh, overwhelmingly. Uh, they're not. They're certainly not sold on the idea. Um, Senate President Pro Tem Rod Bray said uh, before amending the state constitution, lawmakers really needed to consider why the age limits were set. Uh, and he argues uh, that it was actually for a bit more life experience, that at 18 years old, you don't have a firm grasp on what some of those consequences of legislation may be. Uh, Conversely, uh, outgoing House Speaker Brian Bosman joked that uh, they, shouldn't raise, uh, they should raise the age limit actually to uh, 40 or 45, <laughs> um, but mostly fell in line with, with Bray saying, you know, we, we really need to consider why these age limits were set in place.
0: Yeah, I I I would love to ask him why he feels that way. I know it was just a joke, but uh <laughs> but that's that's pretty funny.
1: I mean, you know, I uh as someone who is 27 uh and uh, basically the same age as, as uh Chris Chung, you know, I can I very much appreciate why you would look at those term limits and and think, well, maybe I should we should reconsider that, but I'm also someone who doesn't own property. So a lot of the the consequences of a lot of legislation sometimes uh I have to go for uh more context. Mm-hmm. So that might be
0: and, a, that, and that could be the GOP leaderships uh, are part of their argument as well.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Um, what about uh, uh, this Medicaid waiver for mental health?
1: Yeah. So uh, Indiana got this waiver uh, earlier this week on Monday, in fact. Uh, So Medicaid funds were limited for inpatient mental health treatment at facilities with more than 16 beds. So depending on the size, you couldn't stay for a certain period of time. And so this waiver helps ease that and allows for longer inpatient uh, stays uh, to help transition folks back into the community, especially when they're dealing with uh, severe mental illnesses. Um, And this uh, also is expected to drive down Uh, some of the costs associated with uh, overuse of emergency departments for mental health problems. Uh, So the Indiana Department of uh, Family and Social Services says the reason why this waiver was so important was because of the connection between substance use abuse disorder and mental illness. Uh, They say uh, about a quarter of folks with substance abuse disorder also have a serious mental illness. Uh and Indiana is one of three uh, places that got this waiver. It was Vermont and DC that also got the waiver uh which goes into effect on January 1.
0: So really we're one of two states. Yeah. I mean DC uh, territory but uh so that's huh it'll it'll go into effect first of next year. Yeah. Okay. Uh and I, I think that this is this is great because uh, the focus on mental health is uh, is shifting, and I think that uh, that this is a good step and I think that uh, if Indiana is leading the way with this I think that might might make well for us in the headlines
1: yeah it's also interesting the the shifting focus on uh, substance abuse disorder um, so the the state itself has long uh, been focusing on treating it as an illness and this kind of uh, continues that that step of saying, hey, you know what, if we're going to deal with the opioid um, epidemic, we have to treat addiction as an illness and we have to furthermore also treat mental illnesses as any other illness as well.
0: Mm. Um- Homeless students. So the number of homeless uh, students uh, in Indiana nearly doubled in the last 10, 11 years,
1: 10 years. Yeah. Uh, And those numbers are kind of shocking. According to state data, Indiana had more than 16,300 homeless students enrolled in schools last year compared to just over 8,900 in 2008. Uh, So to kind of figure out what that means, uh, Jeannie Lindsay, our education reporter, talked to Fort Wayne Community Schools about how this strains school resources, especially when you consider that state funding only covers about half of homeless students. Um, So Fort Wayne Community Schools has the highest student enrollment in the state overall and the second largest population of homeless students. Uh, Their spokesperson said uh, the district offers meals and transportation uh, to any homeless student enrolled in the district, but it doesn't get money for all those services. So they're relying on a lot of community outreach and things like that just to take care of their student population.
0: So when we say students in this case, we're talking K-12 or are we talking K through college? K-12. K-12. Homeless. Oh, my goodness. And, uh, ooh, what is this about uh, fish? (laughs) We're talking about fish? (laughs) Uh, What's so important about these Cisco fish?
1: Well, first of all, they have the cutest name of any fish I've ever heard of. <laughs> <Okay>. uh, <laughs> uh, so these fish, uh, a cold water species called ciscos, uh, mm-hmm. are a really good indicator for the impacts of climate change. Uh, so back in the 1950s, uh, ciscos were in more than 40 Indiana lakes. Uh, now the Indiana Department of Natural Resources says they're only found in seven. Mm. Um, so our energy and environment reporter, Rebecca Thiel, uh, talked to a Purdue ecology professor who explained that, you know, as climate change car- uh, causes Larger rainfall in the spring, uh, you get more flooding and more runoff, which means you get more nutrients coming off of the land, which can cause algae blooms, which deprive fish like ciscos of oxygen in their lakes, causing them to die. Mm. Uh, and so, this is a really a very tangible way of measuring some of the the impact of climate change uh, on Indiana's wildlife.
0: Mm. And for for people who don't know ciscos, can you describe them? Are they? The, the,
1: yeah, they they're. Uh, they're um,
2: man
0: i would say uh, uh, from what i recall they they're about the size of like an adult hand mm-hmm. about as about that long mm-hmm. with uh, with fairly large eyes
1: yeah so they they've kind of got i mean they're fish so they've got those kind of like weird silver fish eyes and they are a silver fish uh with darker coloration on its back mm-hmm. um interestingly enough as part of uh Becky's uh Rebecca's, uh, uh reporting um they uh, these fish actually end up feeding a, uh, more popular fish to catch, uh, like salmon and trout. Mm. So they're just small enough in order to be, um, you know, eaten by the larger fish, but they're also just large enough to eat some of the the tiny fish that you see in most uh, rivers and lakes.
0: Mm-hmm. And uh, you'll be back for one more week of the Friday pitch in next week before mm-hmm. we turn it over to Brandon Smith, right?
1: Yes, and good luck with that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, and this is and this doesn't mean you're gone forever. You'll be back after the session, but. We're we're going to start doing the Friday pitch in for a segment with Brandon because the session is about to start.
1: Yes. And uh, if you know any if you need an expert as on how the state house works and how the legislative session works. Brandon Smith is always the person to go to.
0: (laughs) Indeed. Uh, Well, we got a couple of minutes left. How was Christmas for you?
1: Christmas was a blast. Uh, I got to see uh, all of my family on uh, Sunday. Uh, We had a big family reunion, and we actually ended up having it at WFYI. What?
0: Yes. Our flagship station here.
1: Yes. So uh, we had more than 50 people. I have a big uh, (laughs) Catholic family. My dad and my grandparents had one kid, but everybody else had three or four to make up for that. Uh, So all of my cousins, we had family from across the the country as well as out of the country. I got to meet some of my littlest cousins uh, from uh, Japan. Um, and we had a snowball fight in the parking lot because we realized <laughs> that my oldest of those cousins, uh, Ryu, uh, hadn't ever played in snow. Mm. Uh, so he and his brother Kai started throwing snowballs at one another. And uh, Kai got me in the back of the head. So let me tell you that kid's got an arm. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, it's, uh, it sounds like a great time. So essentially, was were, were you the host since it was in Indianapolis?
1: Uh, a little bit. So that was that was the big the Chapman family Christmas party. Which, we, we have a family reunion for all of the high holidays, which are uh, Christmas, Easter, and the 4th of July. For some reason. All for right. some reason. Uh, and then uh, so then we had regular uh, Christmas with uh, my parents and grandparents and my Aunt Judy.
0: And you had a great uh, – uh, <laughs> we communicate here at All In on Slack, and you had a great Slack message. You were marked safe from the Chapman family Christmas party. <laughs> I was. <laughs> which made me laugh out loud when I saw it. So as far as uh, gifts did you did you make out like a bandit as as oh. a as a father would say.
1: Yeah, I'm an only child and an only grandchild. <laughs> okay, so, so things yeah. went well. Yeah, <laughs> I, I I got it. finally got the Nintendo Switch. Oh, so, oh uh, okay. Now I'm looking very seriously at what games to get, and I'm seriously considering picking up Witcher Three.
0: Well, I would recommend if you like to play games with other people, if you like fun, simple games with other people. I like um, Overcooked. If mm-hmm. you if you've heard of that one, no, uh, it's a fun one where you cooperate and you can move. You you, you have to. You're running a restaurant essentially, and you have to um, run around and and prepare food and put it on a plate and do all this it gets my wife and i yelling at each other uh so much because because she's like she like takes over as the chef you know Mm -hmm. she's 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 really good at it and of course mario kart's a good
3: good time yeah
0: yeah so that that's that's what i have and that's what i play on the switch (laughs) uh so anyway our news empress lauren chapman (laughs) Thank you, Lauren.
1: Thank you as always for having me.
0: Up next, proposed education funding changes from the Department of Workforce Development could cut funding from some family and consumer science classes. We'll hear from Indiana Public Broadcasting's Justin Hicks on those changes next. I'm Matt Pelser. We're back in 90 seconds. This is All In. This is All In. I'm Matt Pelser. The state's Department of Workforce Development has provided the State Board of Education with funding recommendations that could put family and consumer science classes in jeopardy. Family and consumer science teachers across the state are concerned about what funding changes could mean for the future of their classes. Today, we're joined by Indiana Public Broadcasting's Workforce Development reporter, Justin Hicks, who has been following the story. Justin, thank you for being with us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Justin, you've been following the developments around the state funding for family and consumer science classes. What kinds of classes fall under this umbrella? What subjects are we talking about here?
3: Yeah, sure. So this is a pretty broad umbrella, the family and consumer science uh, suite of classes, if you will. Um, So it includes things like uh, food sciences, um, early childhood education, fashion and textiles is in there, Um, even things like housing and interior design and nutrition science. And that's that's the very broad umbrella of family and consumer sciences. Um, there's, there's only a handful of classes that, that seem to be uh, maybe at risk in some schools, um, but that's the broad umbrella of family consumer sciences.
0: And what is happening around the issue of funding these classes right now?
3: Sure, so there's five specific classes um and so i don't want to i don't want to uh make it sound like it's like it's all a family consumer science programs it's not the entire programs uh, but there's five specific classes that uh when the Department of workforce development uh who who is legally mandated to kind of hand a recommendation every year to the state Board of Education for approval um the The way this works is is there's there's this stuff called incentive funding, and what that does is it's the state's way of saying we prioritize uh sort of these classes over here and uh and to kind of sweeten the pot for local schools and to help offset some of the costs. They say, um, tell us how many kids enrolled in this certain CTE class, a career technical education class. Uh, Tell us how many kids enrolled, and we'll we'll kind of reimburse you um, that amount. And sometimes that I think uh, my understanding is that sometimes it's not necessarily a reimbursement. It happens maybe after the fact or before the fact sometimes. But whatever the case is, um, let's say you had five kids enroll in a class, and the state says we'll give you $100 for each kid that enrolls in that class. The school then gets $500. So there were five classes in particular that fell under the FCS umbrella. Um, it was adult, adult roles and responsibilities, uh, consumer economics, nutrition and wellness, child child development, and interpersonal relationships. Those kind of classes that teach more of your more general kind of adult skills type things, you know, personal finance, how to balance a checkbook, or nutrition and wellness, maybe just how to cook basic foods for yourself. Uh, those classes were recommended by the Department of Workforce Development in association with the Governor's Workforce Cabinet. Uh, they were recommended to be sort of removed from that list of uh, classes that get that incentive funding. So, um, and they were actually being incentively incentively funded. I don't know if that's a, a real a real phrase, but uh, at $150 per student. Um, and uh, my understanding is thousands of kids, uh, maybe tens of thousands of kids across the state. Uh, took these classes um, because they're rather, you know, you're, 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 like I said, your baseline adult skills. So a lot of kids took these classes um, and uh, that could mean uh, significantly less money for some schools.
0: And why is it that the state workforce agencies are making recommendations about where money should be allocated in schools?
3: Yeah. So, uh, one important thing to note is that the uh, CTE program, the Career and Technical Education program, which used to be in the Indiana Department of Education, has been moved from the Department of Education underneath the governor's workforce cabinet. So CTE stuff is now funneled through the workforce cabinet with the idea uh, to be that it streamlines sort of the workforce process. Uh, the workforce cabinet is supposed to be talking to business leaders from all around the state, finding out what they need, what they're looking for. And then addressing those needs as quickly as possible. So kind of having that whole pipeline of saying, okay, you need more kids with a welding certification, for instance. I have access to the ninth graders right now, and I can get them prepared to start welding for you, you know, pretty soon after they graduate from high school. So I think the intention was to put them all in that one workforce umbrella, that one workforce uh, cabinet to kind of make things go a little bit quicker, a little less bureaucratic. Um, and to streamline sort of the, the needs of companies and, and how they're addressed.
0: And what is the state's argument for cutting funding to family and consumer science classes? Do we know where that money would go instead?
3: Yeah. So uh, and, and it's really just a philosophical, I don't know if philosophical, but it, it's, it's a priority difference in the sense that uh, there was a report that came out in October 2018 uh, there was a CTE action team that presented a report to the governor's workforce cabinet. And in that report, they showed that about a fourth of all of actually even over a fourth of uh, of students taking CTE classes in Indiana were taking these very, very general, uh, you know, adult skills type classes. Um, and their argument was that we're spending money on these kind of generalized classes when what companies are telling us is that we need people with certifications with very specific skills. And so if students aren't kind of progressing along this pathway of, you know, I take welding one, then I take welding two, and then I take welding three, and I get a certification at the end of the day. Um, if they're not kind of progressing along uh, in, in sort of going in that um, pathway of, of classes, um, you know, then, then it's kind of taking money away from those types of classes, um, if they're staying in that sort of general pool of adult skills classes. So their thought was to just prioritize students taking these career pathways a little bit more, maybe, um, than them having these sort of general adult skills classes.
0: So what I'm hearing is that the issue is that the state thinks that these classes or rather the time spent that these students would otherwise be spending on these classes might be better spent if it were spent on something a little more specific, perhaps. Like you said, like like uh, work skills classes like welding and things like that.
3: Yeah, exactly. One or two sentences from the October 2018 report that I think really sort of clarify this Uh, says literally this is a quote there is a perverse incentive for schools to max out credit in one or two courses or enroll students in several of the foundational or introductory courses rather than offering courses that have rigorous, non-duplicative content. Essentially meaning they want students to go, uh, you know, depth versus breadth. They want students to go deep rather than wide in in a single subject matter. What have you heard from teachers about these cuts? Sure. So, as you can imagine, it's not popular with teachers, especially teachers who teach those exact classes that they've been told won't receive the state incentive funding. Um, understandably, uh, many teachers are worried that their schools um, who have sort of less than ideal budgets, we'll will say um, many of them, uh, that, that the schools, if they don't have that incentive funding, won't prioritize their classes at all and won't offer them. Now, that's not to say that the schools can't offer these classes. A school can offer these classes. A school could offer, you know, the, the underwater basket weaving example. They could offer that if they wanted to. Um, but the state wouldn't, you know, provide an incentive funding for that.
0: When it comes to helping prepare and educate a future workforce, do teachers have a shared sentiment about what kinds of classes do that best?
3: Maybe it's you know every teacher is going to say that maybe their class is the most important um, and and that's totally fair. Um, but I think maybe one thing overall that almost every teacher can agree on, uh, and this is something that I've heard from a lot of companies in workforce development reporting, is that something that people really want to see are these quote unquote soft skills and those are the skills that you know they're hard to you, you can't just necessarily put on a test. It's not multiple choice. Uh, they're skills that are things like how do you talk to someone uh, who's maybe your boss and how do you negotiate <laughs> with, with someone like that? Um, how do you show up to work on time? Uh, those things that are sort of hard to quantify and hard to measure. Uh, a lot of teachers argue that these classes uh, teach those very things because it gives them sort of a lab to experiment with them on. Do these cuts
0: for family and consumer science classes point to any broader trends that we're seeing in education right now in Indiana?
3: Well, yeah, I mean, I think it's pointing to the prioritization of credentials and post-secondary credentials. Um, so one of the big things you're going to hear a lot in in CTE and um, and just generally with workforce education initiatives lately is that, you know, maybe going to a four-year college is not necessarily the best option. Um, it's expensive. You wind up in a lot of debt. Most people do. So they're trying to kind of steer – Um, a little bit more of the the high school graduate population into getting those things like um, an associate's degree or maybe going to Ivy Tech and getting a uh, CDL license um, or being a a CNC operator, that kind of thing. So you're seeing kind of more of a push towards these credentials. In in the state's defense, they have to quantify, they have to show sort of – what's going on and, and what their success is. And credential attainment is pretty easy to measure. You know, you can say 100 people have a credential. Um, it's hard to say that 100 people showed up on time every day for work. So um, they're moving kind of in that direction towards post-secondary credentials. And I think this is sort of coming out of that because uh, those adult life skills, um, you know, maybe aren't as easy to measure and and, and as easy to point to and say – This got that kid uh, into that specific job that has an opening.
0: And I have to disclaim that we are recording this before uh, this meeting takes place. But on the day that you're hearing this, the 27th, the Board of Education is holding a meeting uh, to discuss these funding recommendations. Can we expect to see any movement on these recommendations?
3: I don't know. It's a great question. And uh, it's something we're all looking to see. So one interesting thing about the Board of Education, this was actually originally brought up in a meeting uh, earlier this month or in in early December. And uh, during that meeting, a lot of the board members flat out said, um, if this means that we won't be able to provide incentive funding for those particular courses, um, I am strongly against that. And a lot of them said that. With all that being said, though, there's a little kink in the Indiana state law that says the state board of education essentially has to at some point uh approve this proposal they really they don't necessarily have a choice so they can stall and they can put off approving this proposal um this this funding change but they can't necessarily stop it and that's to that point no one is exactly sure what will happen uh and, and by the way they have to they have to make this happen by january 1st So they have to approve this thing according to Indiana state law by January 1st, but no one's exactly quite sure what will happen if they don't. So we're all kind of waiting to see what will happen.
0: He's the workforce development reporter for Indiana Public Broadcasting, Justin Hicks. Thank you for joining us today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. And now for some perspective, we're joined by Professor Carol Warhan, a family and consumer science teacher educator at Purdue University. Professor Warhan, thanks for being with us today.
2: Thank you, Matt.
0: Uh, From an educator's perspective, what are the concerns around these five family and consumer science classes losing funding?
2: Well, there's two main issues. The first one has to do with nutrition and wellness and child development are both foundational courses for several of Indiana's high demand, high wage career pathways, including education and training, human services, nutrition would be for hospitality and human um, sciences and health sciences. So it is as if um, we're being told we will not fund algebra one but we will fund Algebra Two, so these are introductory or foundational courses to be able to take the next step along the career pathway. So that's one issue, and then the other issue has to do with um, these courses provide critical knowledge in areas impacting the state of Indiana and identified as a high priority by policymakers at all levels including high infant and maternal maternal, maternal um, mortality rates and also child abuse prevention, which child development directly addresses these issues. I mean, one might argue they ought to be required, but we're finding they're not even going to be funded. So one part is about Being the the start of a career pathway that's in a high demand, high wage job, and the other is not being, things are not being funded that are just good for kids.
0: And while this budget redistribution is meant to help give students concrete skills and certificates to enter the workforce, are we perhaps limiting the types of skill preparation that we offer to
2: students? Yes. Um, I see this as somewhat of a direct targeting to. Those careers that are human centered as opposed to manufacturing centered or making something centered, um, if we're talking about helping people to to decide I want to be a teacher, you need to take child development, I want to work with children in human services, you need child development, I want to be a nurse, a doctor, a nutritionist, a dietitian, you need nutrition and wellness. I want to go into hospitality and perhaps uh, do culinary in assisted living or in a restaurant. You need to start with nutrition and wellness. So these are the, the first steps along a career pathway. And the funding issue seems to be they're saying they will not fund foundational courses, but they will introductory courses. These terms were determined years ago when there was no dollar sign hung on those terms. It's a semantics issue. So we're hoping the uh, Department of Workforce Development will realize an error has taken place. Uh, Several years ago, we had the Family and Consumer Sciences expert at the Department of of Education. Uh, All the experts were taken out. And uh, so this decision was made in a vacuum without the experts being at the table. So we're hoping that error could be corrected um And then we could move forward with having these introductory or foundational courses that Indiana kids need.
0: What would you like to see the Department of Worksforce Development continue to take into consideration as they can as they categorize these classes?
2: If you have a class that is step one of any pathway, that needs to be funded. High schools are already stretched to a breaking point, and it's fine to say, well, step two is really well-funded, so you take care of step one, and we'll give you more for step two. That puts schools in a really big pinch of, okay, so how do I get kids interested in step two if we can't afford to do step one? Um, I just don't think that was completely thought out. I'm not sure that the people at the table understood that foundational, as in with a home, is required to make the whole process stand up. And whether you use the term foundational or introductory, it's the same thing. It's where you start.
0: Professor Carol Warhan, a family and consumer science teacher educator at Purdue University, thanks for your time today. Thank you, Matt. And as we mentioned earlier, a special meeting was held today to discuss these funding changes. Indiana Public Broadcasting's Jeannie Lindsay was there and reports that the State Board of Education approved CTE course funding levels from the Department of Workforce Development today that will cut state funding from some family and consumer science courses. The vote was largely procedural under Indiana law. The State Board has to approve CTE course funding placements from the Department of Workforce Development. But uh, many board members remained concerned about the future of classes they say are foundational for students' lives as well as careers. Officials say the cut in funding for these family and consumer science classes was triggered by a change lawmakers made last spring. Schools are able to appeal to the Department of Workforce Development. If you'd like to learn more, Indiana Public Broadcasting will have more reporting out today. Well, up next, we will hear from Hoosier comedian Ryan Neemiller, who made it to third place in the last season of America's Got Talent. That's next. I'm Matt Pelser. We're back in 90 seconds. This is All In. This is All In. I'm Matt Pelser. If you're an America's Got Talent fan, you're probably familiar with the name Ryan Neemiller. He's the self-proclaimed cripple threat of comedy. His quick wit about his own experiences navigating a world not designed for someone with a physical handicap propelled him onto the national scene, and he joins us today to talk about his comedy and his career. Ryan, thanks for joining us today.
4: Absolutely. Thanks for having me, man. I appreciate
3: it.
0: And you were uh, the last standing comedian on season 14 of America's Got Talent this summer and took home third place on this huge national talent show. Congratulations. What a big success.
4: Thank you. Third place isn't bad. You know, that show, depending on who you ask, it starts with about 60 to 70,000 acts that try to submit in some way. So, you know, it would have been nice to win, but third ain't terrible. I'll take that any day.
0: Yeah, and where where did this journey start? What made you say, I'm going to try out for this?
4: Uh, I started this. I've been trying to get on the show for five years before I actually did. So this had been a process that I had tried to, tried to do. Uh, started by kind of just going to the cattle call, sort of, um, you know, where you just show up at a city and you wait in line for several hours and you do that. And, you know, I got discouraged for a little bit, but I kept seeing friends of mine get on the show and do well. And I was like, dang it, I should be doing that. (laughs) So luckily, I think by the fifth year, they just got sick of seeing me. And they were like, okay, if we let you on, will you stop? And I went, absolutely. And here we are.
0: Well, and not only did you make it on, you you finished in the top three. Did you ever anticipate that you'd gain the traction that you did on the show?
4: Um, It's one of those things, like, I'm always kind of tentative about answering that because I don't want to sound like I'm cocky, but, like, I felt like if I finally got the initial go-ahead to be on the show, I could make something special happen. You know, I've been doing this a long time. I'm 13 years into comedy now. I know how to – and like comics, I think, have a small advantage sometimes on that show because we talk for a living. So we know how to sell personality. That show is not always necessarily about who's the most talented person in the world. It's more about who is the most likable personality sometimes. And I knew, like, if I just if they gave me a chance to talk on television, I could make something cool happen. And luckily, they gave me a lot of that.
0: Uh, that make that makes perfect sense. I've kind of felt the same way uh, watching it. What, what is the experience of getting feedback from Simon Cowell and Howie Mandel
4: like? It's uh, it's nerve wracking. Um, I'll tell you that because um, initially, you want like as a comedian, you want Howie Mandel to like you on that show. A lot of people, if you're just fans of AGT, they sort of forget that Howie is a legend in comedy. He's not just, like, the quirky guy who who uh, does that. He's not just, you know, the voice of Gizmo from uh, <laughs> Gremlins or Bobby's World. You know, he's, like, a legend in comedy. So had he not liked me, it would have been a little heartbreaking. Uh, and with Simon, um, you know, for better or worse, you know, America votes based on what Simon says. So... Simon doesn't know anything, he'll be the first to admit, admit, he doesn't know anything about how stand-up comedy works. But since he thought I was funny, America went, yeah, we do too. <laughs> so we'll vote for him as well.
0: And and what's it like as a comedian competing in a competition with people who have entirely different talents? you got magicians and singers. It's It's kind of apples to oranges competing against each other. What's that like?
4: Yeah, It's one of those things that, like, on paper, it doesn't make a lot of sense <laughs> because, like, how do you really compare, like, what I do against, you know, like, the Unbeatable, like, you know, the insane dance crew from India. Like, what they do is nothing like what I do. So how do you really compare that? So I had to kind of go in there with the thought of I just need to do better than I did the last time because, you know, it's really just up to how people, you know, translate it in their own head for what it is. You know, because some people, you know, no matter how many times that they they don't want to vote for singers ever. They think singers should have their own show. So it doesn't matter how good or talented a singer is on the show. Some people will never vote for them. I get the same thing with comedy. Some people think that, oh, comedy is easy. You know, they're wrong. (laughs) But the way that they sort of look at it, they're like, oh, well, he's just talking. How is that a talent? So they won't even vote for you based on that. So you kind of just have to go in and not worry too much about how you measure up to everyone else. You just want to make sure that you do the best you can in that moment.
0: And for people who are unfamiliar with your comedy, a lot of your act revolves around the daily experiences that you have as a person with a disability. What is your disability?
4: Uh, so I have a disability in my arms. So from about the elbow down, my arms didn't fully develop uh, during my mom's pregnancy with me. So um, I have a congenital birth defect. I was born with only five fingers total, Um, And it's one of those things that it's noticeable. I can't pretend I don't have it. It's not something that I can just like, oh, well, if I never talk about it, people won't notice. It's pretty obvious (laughs) what I have. So um, and for me, it's like important to talk about it. I don't want to talk about it forever. It's not I have a lot more things that are important to me in my life, but it's also something that makes me unique. It's different. And people, there's still a lot of work for people with disabilities to do to have these conversations because a lot of people are just so uncomfortable hearing about it. They pretend it doesn't happen. So I want to kind of push through that and then I can do whatever I want after that.
0: And it shapes your comedy in a very big and real way. Of course, it's, it's, it's what you have chosen to talk a lot about on the show, but how much of say, I don't know, you've been a comedian for, for, for 13 or so years now. Um, How does, how much of it is part of like, say your road act?
4: Um, I'd say about half and half. Yeah, it it really depends. Like, I mean, I talk about other stuff and I sprinkle it in because the way I look about it, it's not just it's not a gimmick. It's not something that I'm just trying to exploit, per se. It's more something like it's literally my life. Like, you know, like it's how I have to live. If I don't make jokes about it, you know, that's one thing. But like my day to day life is shaped by it. You know, I go to the grocery store. People are going to stare at me. People are going to try to help me when I didn't ask for it. You know, when I was still having to work regular jobs, people not hiring me because they assume that with a disability, I can't do that job. Uh, Difficulties with dating because people, you know, are just uncomfortable and scared because it's so different. And then they, I don't know how other people are going to talk about it. So there's so much that like it shapes the rest of my life that I think it's ridiculous when people would be mad that I want to talk about it in my act. Because it's not, it's not just talking about this. It's, it's who I am.
0: Well, yeah. And as a comedian, it's a it, standup comedy is kind of, a, it's a, it's a visual medium. And so that's kind of something you got to get out of the way initially. So you might as well joke about it.
4: Exactly. And, and a lot of what I, I think that I'm trying to do, like, like it's actual, I'm trying to have like a deeper purpose to it. I'm not up there just trying to make puns <laughs> you know, or just do little sight gags or anything like that. I'm talking about actual things that have happened to me, you know, stupid encounters that I've had, how it's affected my day to day. It's not just me going up there dancing for the people, (laughs) you know, like a like a jukebox that you put a coin in and I do this little funny thing. It's uh, I try to be real about it. And, you know, I think that's part of what helped me have such a successful run on America's Got Talent is that people could tell I was genuine, that this stuff was important to me.
0: Was your disability always something that you had a sense of humor about?
4: Um, Yeah, for the most part. Uh, It's something you kind of, uh, especially when yours is like, when it's so obvious, like what I have, you know, I can't just wear a long sleeve shirt and nobody knows, you know, so um, I learned pretty early on, you know, when I first started getting to school, you know, age four or five, that if I made the jokes first, other people wouldn't make fun of me. You know, because kids are mean. You know, it's a, you know, they don't have it learned those like social cues and not just say whatever they're thinking yet. So for me, it was sort of a, originally a self defense mechanism. Like if I made the jokes first, everyone would leave me alone. And then as time went on, I kind of realized, hey, if I'm funny, people do what I need them to do. And it sort of blossomed for me.
0: <laughs> do, do you ever hear feedback about your bits from other people with physical disabilities?
4: i do yeah and it's almost universally positive um because a, a lot of people and i said this on adt as well when i was growing up there was nobody who looked like me on television there was no one with that kind of platform that you could be like oh well this is just a thing that some people have it's not gross it's not weird just some people are different than others and i never had that to look at even now there's barely anything that I can kind of point to and go, oh yeah, that's someone that's kind of living my experience. So I've gotten a lot of positive feedback from either people with disabilities or people with children who have disabilities who are like, thank you for at least talking about it and getting it out there to help normalize it. Because my long time goal is that I never have to talk about it again because it will just be just something that people realize that others have. And it's okay to talk about just like anything else.
0: You've been a comic for thirteen or so years. Uh, yeah. So far, so good, and you've gotten on America's Got Talent. And d- did you always want to be a
4: comic? I'm not. Uh, uh, yes and no. Um, I always uh, wanted to be a performer, but my first dream as a performer, I was dead certain I was going to be a professional wrestler. That is, uh, <laughs> that was always my first love. That was like the first thing I fell in love with, as far as like theater and performance, just the pageantry and how over the top and, and getting to see, you know, these larger than life characters, you know, be in arenas full of, you know, 30, 40, 50,000 people and just have them in the palm of their hands. Like I fell in love with that. And that's why I started theater. I have a degree in theater from Indiana state university. Um, I did a lot of stage, but it was um, always to help me be a pro wrestler. And uh, I trained to wrestle for about three months and my body just couldn't take it. It's, You know, people want to make fun of it for being fake or whatever. And um, it's not fake. It's scripted. Those are two very different things because I played a lot of quote-unquote real sports throughout my life. You know, I played football all the way through high school. I never was in more pain than when I was going through the wrestling training. (laughs) Wow.
0: You you grew up in uh, DeMott, Indiana?
4: DeMott, Indiana, yes. The Mecca of Entertainment.
0: (laughs) It's uh, (laughs) up in the northwestern part of the state. Uh, yeah, what yeah was, up what, in the region. The region, yeah. What was your childhood like up there?
4: Uh, it was uh, it was up and down. Like I had, for the most part, a happy childhood when I was away from home. Um, I kind of used that as sort of my stage. It was my way to kind of forget. But, like, life at home was a little rough. We grew up pretty poor. Um an old trailer park kid. There were six of us packed into a single wide trailer. Um, I didn't own a bed until I went to college. That was the first time I had a bed of my own was then – and, uh, you know, I, I loved my dad, but he was uh, he was kind of a career alcoholic. So there there was kind of a lot of like uh, I had to learn how to survive in a lot of other ways, too. It wasn't just growing up with a disability. It was kind of the harsh reality that not everything is, you know, set up the same for everybody as they grow up. So you kind of have to you get some thick skin pretty early that way.
0: Yeah, but you can mine an awful lot of content.
4: That is true. Well, now. <laughs>
0: I mean, well, now, time, yeah. Now you can reckon time, with that.
4: You know? it. It's one of those things, that I, that's how weird the comic brain can be sometimes, is that you can go through, like, this, you know objectively kind of pretty awful stuff. And your brain's like, Oh, that'll be good material later. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> like, you're so excited. You're like, yeah, rip my heart out. Yeah. Come on. <laughs> and
0: you've talked about being battle tested out on the road. What's it like to be a comedian on the road, to just be in a different city every night, to always be moving to the next place. Uh, was that a pace that you enjoyed or is it at its challenges?
4: Um, I- I'll say that I enjoy it now. It's something that it's hard to explain because like, I'm happy that I was, you know, I'm an old road dog, you know, I was literally like all the stories I told about sleeping in my car and all that 100% true. I still do long drives, that I probably shouldn't now just out of habit, but you know, it's those stuff that like, it, it made me strong. and made me ready that when I finally got my break, I was ready to go. I didn't have to learn to be a headliner. You know, I've already dealt with some of the worst rooms in the world. You know, when you're doing dive bars in the middle of Iowa for three drunks who don't even know it's comedy night and they refuse to let you turn the TVs off because they're watching the game, that makes you tough. That gives you a thick skin, for sure. So now it's a little bit easier because I'm on the road a lot and I'm traveling nonstop. But it's nice because people are coming to shows to see me on purpose. So it's kind of like my reward for dealing with that whole 12 years of uh, – of banging my head against the wall, hoping it worked out.
0: When when you performed to thousands of people on a big stage and you're also on national television, that's a lot different, I would imagine, than performing in a little club in the middle of the state. Do you, I mean, how much did you have to adjust your act? Was it completely different? Were they two completely different experiences?
4: Uh, yes, um, only because, uh, and it wasn't so much because of the size of the venue. I mean, that does play a part because you kind of, Stand up is one of those things that once you kind of figure out how to do it, you play off what the uh, the audience is giving you. So sometimes if that energy is really hot, you can kind of be more energetic. If they're really tight at the beginning, you kind of have to massage them a little bit to get where you need to go. This one was different, not because of the fact that it was these large crowds, because, you know, it's like three, four thousand people that you're performing in front of. It was more because it's TV. And that's just a different expectation you know um my normal act when I'm on the road it's 50 minutes to an hour so you can take your time you can really play with things make things work on america's got talent i think the most i got to do was 3 minutes so you have to get to the point and fast <laughs> so it's a much different energy
0: who who are your your uh, influences who 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 are the comedians you love
4: um probably uh the two i would say um more um i don't really kind of I don't. I don't know if I'm directly like him in any means, but uh, Dave Chappelle was always one of my favorites, um, and then uh, another Indiana boy, uh, Jim Gaffigan. Uh, Jim Gaffigan. He grew up in the uh, the region as well. I uh, think he's from Chesterton area. Uh, when I first started, I used to accidentally do Jim Gaffigan impressions on stage, because when you when you're just beginning, you don't really know how it works. You don't know what your voice is yet, so you kind of imitate people you've seen and you like. So I used to do that, like, what's wrong with this guy? I did that voice all the time (laughs) and I had to like have someone point it out to me and I was like, Oh yeah, I'm not supposed to do that. Crap.
0: (laughs) Have you been able to meet any of your heroes now that you got a little stardom under your belt?
4: Uh, I have. um, But it's honestly been through other worlds. Cause like I said, I was a huge pro wrestling fan. Like that was my first love. Uh, So the fact now that, um, not only did I get to do the thing during the finals of AGT with Chris Jericho, who's my all time favorite wrestler, but the fact that we're like buddies now, like we text and like hang out when I'm down where he lives and stuff. It's surreal to me how cool my life has gotten now.
0: And, and what are you up to now? Where can people come see you perform?
4: Uh, so I am touring like crazy right now. That is uh, essentially what my life is at the moment. Um, So you can always find my schedule. It's on my website, CrippleThreat.com. Also, all of my social media is at CrippleThreat8, and that's the number eight, because there was seven Cripple Threats before me, clearly. Uh, So uh, I'm constantly on the, I'm just constantly traveling. You know, this, since uh, AGT ended in September, I've been home maybe four days now, because I've just been on the road. Um, You know, this week alone, I'm going to Cleveland and Spokane, then I'm off for the holidays, and then I go to... Oklahoma City and I'm gonna be in Hobart, Indiana, and Tulsa and Kansas City and St. Louis and then Buffalo. So you can see me if you live somewhere, I'm probably doing a show near you. <laughs> That's the kind of schedule I'm keeping right now.
0: He is the quote cripple threat of comedy. Who's your comic? Ryan Neemiller from America's Got Talent. Ryan, thanks so much and best of luck, man.
4: I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you. Our producers are Drew
0: Dodlin and Maggie Galon. Scott Cameron is our managing editor. Our show is engineered by Adam Gross. Subscribe to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts so you always know what we're up to. We're also on Twitter and Facebook at All In Indiana. I'm Matt Pelser. Thanks for listening. Have a great weekend. This is All In.